I have a number of sermons I'd love to repent of looking back over the years, but uh, pray that God would bless us this evening in His Word. And I want to—I I didn't get to this material when I was up with our brethren in Michigan, and I wanted to share it. It's been on my heart. It's been something I've given a lot of thought to, things that have benefited me. I know you're well taught. I know you're pastor. Uh, but in the process of teaching the Word of God, there are certain parts of God's Word that we're not as familiar with. We don't hear them taught that often. And it's three, in my three messages, I'd like to share with you what I would say three sort of incidences in the life of David that are very helpful to me in understanding how things work. And the first one is in 2 Samuel chapter 14. While you're turning there, 2 Samuel chapter 14, this involves a woman from a little town called Tekoa. Now I'll tell you a little funny story about Tekoa. I was over in uh, Israel, I guess that would have been about 20, 20, uh, 2011, somewhere in there, and with the staff from the Mexican Indian Training Center in Mexico. It was a wonderful trip, a great time. A lot of those guys had never been more than about 50 miles from their home, never been on an airplane in their life, and here they are roaming around over there in Israel. But we had been out, this was a Friday, we had been uh, out on a bus doing a touring some of the areas, went down the Valley of Elah where David, you remember, fought Goliath, uh, the caves of Adullam where he hid from Saul, and we were coming back into Jerusalem and here was a sign, Tekoa, Tekoa, the very town that's mentioned here. And I got to looking around, okay, where's the town? Well, there really wasn't much of a town there, it's just a rock quarry, there's a lot of limestone rock in that area that they were quarrying out of the quarry there. So I oh, okay, that's interesting. Now I know where Tekoa is. Well, it's only about eh, 10 miles south of Jerusalem. We got back into Jerusalem, walked in our hotel. Now you have to understand, it's sundown Friday. You know what sundown Friday is in Israel? That's the beginning of the Sabbath. And everything in the hotel goes on Sabbath mode. Because in the Jewish understanding of the Sabbath, you can't change the state of anything. If a light is on, you can't turn it off. If it's off, you can't turn it on. They've got all these rules. And so the hotel goes on Sabbath mode where things, when you just go in the room, automatically the lights come on. Because you can't turn them on if you're an Orthodox Jew. And the TV automatically comes on. Because normally on the Sabbath, you couldn't turn the TV on. If it's on, you can leave it on, but you can't turn it off. You, you get the picture. got all these rules of how you do this. And so we walk into our room, and the TV comes on, and it's CNN, the news. Breaking news. Missiles fired at Jerusalem. And we're standing in Jerusalem, in our hotel room. And no sooner do we read that, the air raid sirens go off right outside our hotel. And you've often wondered what you would do in a case like that? Well, take it from me. Not much. We're sitting ducks, you know. What do you do? Uh, we just said, well, if they get us, they get us. Uh, anyway, the missiles, I later learned, hit out in Tekoa where we had just come through. And I said, well, that's a great place for missiles to land and explode because there ain't nothing out there but a rock quarry. So uh, it may have actually helped the excavations going on out there. So anyway, sort of an interesting connection with our story tonight. 
about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, where David would have been reigning, is this little village of Tekoa, and this involves a woman. She probably would have won Best Actress that year if there had been Oscars, because she puts on an act. Let's read the text here, and you'll see what I'm saying. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Any of this familiar to you? Any of you? Sort of, maybe, somewhere back there. All right, let's give it a shot. 2 Samuel 14. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, that's David's sister, by the way, so this is David's nephew, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. That's David's son. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched from thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, pretend, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on thou mourning apparel and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman who had a long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king and speak on this matter unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obeisance and said, Help, O king. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, I indeed am a widow woman, and my husband is dead. And thy handmaid had two sons, and they two strove together in the field, and there was none to part them, but the one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen against thine handmaid, and they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, so that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew. And we will destroy the heir also, and so shall they quench my coal which is left, and shall not leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon earth. And the king said unto the woman, Go to thine house, I'll, I'll give charge concerning thee. And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, Whosoever saith aught unto thee, bring him to me, he shall not touch thee any more. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldest not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Then the woman said, Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord the king. And he said, Say on. And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one who is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. For we must needs die, and are as water spilled on the ground, which can be gathered cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person. Yet doth he devise means that his banished is not expelled from him. Let me stop right there. I want you to especially take note of that last verse. We're just nothing, she said. We're like water spilled on the ground, you know, water over the bridge, we say, or under the bridge. Can't gather us up again. We're just here and gone. And God doesn't respect any person. Yet doth he devise means that his banished 
is not expelled from him. All right, let's go back a little bit and take a look at the setting of all this. After a long struggle with King Saul, Saul was now dead. David is now enthroned, eventually in Jerusalem. And all is going very well until the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel when we read of David's sin with Bathsheba. Uh, You know that sordid tale. And uh, you may also remember that the prophet Nathan told him that uh, the sword will never depart from your house. Uh, You're going to reap the consequence. Although you will not die, your sin is forgiven, your sin is put away. But that doesn't mean you're not going to face the consequences of your sin. And if there's anything that ought to scare us, we think, well, I'm a Christian, I can sin, I'm still going to heaven anyway. Well, my friend, read the story of David. I'm thinking there were many, probably a thousand times, David wished he had never gone walking on his rooftop and watched Bathsheba bathe down below because of what befell him. And sure enough, no sooner is this statement made by Nathan the prophet, the fulfillment begins. You may recall another very sordid tale that uh, David's oldest son, by the way, he had the oldest son was named Amnon, uh, born to a woman called Ahinoam. We don't know a lot about her. She was a Jezreelitess, uh, but that was his oldest son, Amnon. His second son was born to Abigail, another wife. Kileab is his name. And his name never shows up again in Scripture. And it's generally assumed that he probably died either in infancy or as a young child. And I I certainly believe that to be the case. He just sort of disappears from the narrative. The third third son is the one that we have mentioned in our text. That's Absalom. And that seems to be, Absalom seems to be David's pride and joy. And uh, those are the sort of the figures involved here. Amnon, who is the oldest, we learn, has a crush on his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar is Absalom's full sister. You can get the family dynamics here. So Amnon falls in love, or I don't know what you call it, falls in lust uh, for his half-sister, Tamar, and is trying to figure out how to uh, sort of get with her. And one of his friends, another cousin, Uh, suggests that, uh, hey, why don't you fake being sick? Tell your father, King David, that you're sick and that you want Tamar to come and nurse you back to health. So uh, he uh, throws that out to David, and David doesn't see any problem with it. So he allows it, and Tamar comes in where Amnon is living. And uh, anyway, he finally lures her to the bedroom and rapes her. But no sooner does he rape her, but he also then despises her and puts her away. Now, it wasn't unheard of for half-brothers and half-sisters to marry, especially in a royal family. went on quite a bit. But the despising of her, putting her away, he has now brought shame upon her, humiliated her. In fact, she says the, shame, the humiliation of putting me away is even worse than what you did to me in the first place. And so she goes crying to her full brother, Absalom. Absalom has his home. He takes her in and sort of takes care of her for the next couple of years while he plots revenge on his older brother. The way that works is that uh, Absalom is having his sheep shorn up north of there. 
And uh, he asked his father if the family can come up for a big feast up there where he's shearing his feast. Sheep. And uh, David, he wants David to go. He said, no, I can't go. Well, I want Amnon to come. Oh, okay, uh, you know, grant, grants it. And sure enough, what he does, once Amnon arrives at the sheep shearing camp, he gives a signal to his servants and they slay Amnon. At first, the word got back to David that all his sons had been put to death, but it wasn't true, just Amnon. And Absalom then flees up north, up in the north extremity of Israel, to the land of Geshur. And if you look back at Absalom's mother, she was the daughter of the king of Geshur. So he is going, as we would say, uh, to his mother's grandparents on his mother's side, who was king up there in that northern area, just north of the land of Israel. Basically, he went up there for what we would call political asylum, to get out of reach of David. And so, all of a sudden, you've got David, uh, well, what shall we say? He's now bereft of both of these sons, the oldest Amnon, and probably his favorite, Absalom, is now jump ship, run up to Geshur. And uh, it sounds rather uh, cruel, but in the last part of chapter 13, I'm reading verse 37, Absalom fled and went to Tamar, the son of Amahur, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. That's Absalom. He mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. That's rather cold. <laughs> you know, the older one, okay, he's gone, he's dead. But Absalom's still alive. And we here see that David's heart goes out to Absalom. He wants Absalom home. He wants him back. After all, this is his boy. This is his pride and joy, apparently, for a number of reasons that we'll eventually see. And so here is David. Uh, on the one hand, he is a father who loves his son and desperately wants to be reconciled and reunited with her son. On the other hand, he's the king of Israel. And the king doesn't just sit around in a robe with a crown on all day looking pretty. The king's job is to judge disputes just like the one that we've had in our text. This woman coming pretending to be a widow lady who's lost both her sons. Now, do you understand what's going on here? Joab understands that David wants Absalom back. So Joab is going to use this woman as a ploy to try to convince David to fetch his son back home. You see how it's working? Uh, notice that the woman who is pretending to be a widow who has lost her son. Remember, she got two boys. They're out in the field together. One of them got mad the other and killed him. And now the rest of her family, I mean, in those days, you didn't have the highway patrol or the sheriff's department come take you away. It's your relatives that then must avenge the blood of the fallen family member. And so the rest of the family want her to deliver up to them the remaining son because they want to kill him. For justice, for killing his brother. You see how this is working. And she keeps uh, coming. It's funny. She comes to David and he eventually says, okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, go on back home. I'll send word. And then she keeps pressing him and says, well, I'm not going to, you know, hold off. And finally, he says, nobody's going to touch your son. I'm going to issue this decree. Nobody's going to touch your son. 
In other words, she's arguing that, wait a minute, do I have to endure a double death here, a double loss? I have lost my husband. I have no man left except my boys. One of them got killed by the other one, and now my rest of my family want to kill the one that's left. I don't have anybody. And the inheritance that was my husband's will be blotted out of Israel. You, you see the problem. But she's telling David his own story in the third person. You see, this make-believe story is really, it's, it didn't happen to her, that's all fiction. She just, Joab had her say these words. He's, she's telling David his story do you realize how often David falls for that? You remember after his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet comes and says there's the old fellow on the one side of the road with one little ewe lamb, the rich guy on the other side with a whole bunch of sheep. The rich guy has company coming. And instead of getting one of his sheep and serving dinner to his guests, he goes across the road and steals that man's, that poor old man's one little ewe lamb that he treated like his own daughter. He stole that one and served it to his guests. And David said, the man's going to die. And Nathan said, you're the man. You see, he told David his own story in the third person. Joab is doing exactly the same thing and David is falling for it once again. In other words, David has ruled as king. That's his job to judge disputes, to judge righteously, to render judgment and justice in cases like this. That's what the king did on a day-to-day -day basis. And David has said, nobody's going to touch your son. And then she turns around and turns it back on David. Well, you're not, how come you're not doing this? How is it that you can do it in my case, but you're not going to do it in your case and fetch your own son back? And then she makes this amazing statement in verse 14 that this is the way God works. He devises means so that his banished is not expelled from him. And so eventually David Indeed, since Joab up to Geshur brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. And to put it mildly, it's a disaster. First of all, David won't see his son. He's brought him back to Jerusalem, but he won't see him. Won't have a face-to-face -face with him. And Absalom just seems to get seething seething in anger and bitterness towards his father. And he keeps trying to get his father to communicate with him. And finally, he goes to Joab. He has his servants go burn down Joab's wheat field. That'll get a rise out of somebody. Joab shows up at his front door. Hey, buddy, what you doing? And he said, I need an audience with my father. And Joab arranges for that to finally happen. But it is a disaster, as you probably know, the rest of the story that Absalom will, in fact, rebel against his father's rule and reign, will attempt a coup, will attempt to take his own father's life, even though David brought him back home. So that's, that's the background story here. Um, fascinating enough in itself, but I want you to... So what in the world can you and I learn from that today? What, what's the lesson 
for us. And I, this is just something very simple, something that has really struck me about this whole story. That in essence, what David is attempting to do is exactly what God does in this thing we call the gospel. David is attempting to solve a problem. He's on the what we call the horns of a dilemma. You ever been on one of those? Whichever way you go, got you. Okay? And the horns of that dilemma is, as a father, he wants his son back home. He wants his son restored, this son that he so dearly loves. But as king, he's, his job is to execute justice. And so the question is, wait a minute, how can you do both? Do you see the problem? He can either overlook the demands of the law, which says in a case of murder, the murderer is to die, right? Or he can overlook the demands of his love. But the question is, how does he do both? Now he attempts to do both. It's a rather shallow attempt. On the one hand, he's going to bring his son back, but not really back. Yeah, he's fetching Absalom back to Jerusalem, but he's not going to see Absalom. He's going to put him sort of under house arrest for a little while, make him squirm. And yet at the same time, neither does he execute judgment, does he? The justice that the law demanded with no respect of persons. And you say, what does it mean? I had a seven-day Adventist pastor tell me one time, oh, that means God doesn't have favorites. I said, no, that's not what that means. What that means is, even though God does have favorites, He can't treat His favorites under the law any different than He treats His enemies. You remember Lady Justice at the courthouse? Got the balances, the scales in her hands. That speaks of equity. But she's also got a blindfold around her eyes. What does that represent? That she is absolutely blind to who it is that's standing before her. Whether it's a white man or a black man, a rich man or a poor man, Smart man or a dumb man, it doesn't matter. She's supposed to be blind to whoever it is. That's what it means to be no respecter of persons. You do not, usually that verse when you find it in the Old Testament law is connected with neither a taker of bribes, <laughs> you know, the rich guy slipping you a hundred dollar bill under the table. You're not to be a taker of bribes nor a respecter of persons. So in other words, no matter who it is that stands before David, he is to rule equitably as if this was somebody he doesn't even know. And yet what David is trying to do is ride the fence. He's trying to figure out a way that he can sort of give judgment and justice, but on the other hand, he can still have his beloved son back with him at home. Do you see his problem? And, and it's all of a sudden it sort of opened up to my mind this idea that this thing, this problem that David is wrestling with here and can't really find a solution is the very problem God must deal with in saving you and me. In other words, saving you and I presents a huge moral difficulty. Now, I know most people think that God's real problem is how does He justly put people in hell? My friend, that's not His problem. That's easy. 
The soul that sinneth shall surely die, right? They sin, they deserve hell, and he sends them there. No problem. God's problem is how to put a fellow like you and me who deserves to be in hell, in heaven, and be just in doing it. You see the problem? You, you see, you don't really understand the glory of a solution until you understand the difficulty of the problem. I was trained in physics back in my college days, and one day our college professor showed us on the blackboard how Einstein derived his famous solution. You, you know, probably know what it is. E equals mc squared. One of the greatest solutions in all of physics. And our professor filled up the entire back blackboard with equations, finally solving how that equation is true. In other words, all of a sudden, E equals MC squared. I had a new appreciation. That's the solution. But man, look at the problem. How do you work through it? You know, how did you get there? How did you solve this problem? So it is that you're never going to understand the solution that God has given us until you understand the enormity of the problem that confronts God. We have a dear friend, John knew him well, E.W. Johnson, had a great impact on my ministry. And E.W. used to say some wonderful things, but I, I can remember one thing in, in particular. He said, God is the only being that has absolute free will. Okay, yeah. And he said, God has only, in all of time, had only one limitation on his free will. And of course, my ears popped up when he said that. How to show mercy to sinners and be just in doing it. This is the one thing E.W. used to say that God can't do. He cannot show mercy at the expense of His justice. You understand? For God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. Infinitely so. And here is a sinner who has committed an offense against God. And we can go on for hours tonight talking about how horrible sin is. It is indeed sort of what Absalom is doing here, an attempted coup. It is man shaking his fist in the face of his sovereign, saying, I will go my own way. You stay over there in your corner. I'll be my own God. I'll rule. I thank you very much. I'll let you be God everywhere else, but not here. Uh-uh. This is my territory. I'll be the sovereign here. Which is nothing less than an assault on God's throne rights. It's an attempted rape of His dignity. Do you see? It's mighty big of you to let God be God out there, isn't it? And yet, you're not going to acknowledge Him as your God. You see the problem? But what this woman, in just a sort of a matter-of-fact way, says, well, God, when she's arguing with David, let me say again, yet doth he, that's God, devise means that his banished is not expelled from him. A tremendous insight. 
Well, what do you mean his banished? Do you all remember what happened in the garden? After our first parents rebelled, what happened? They're banned, kicked out, cherubim placed at the gate so that they can't get back in. It's paradise lost, as Milton put it in his poem. They've been banned from life, from the presence and fellowship with God Almighty, from His grace, from His mercy. They've been banned. And the question is, how do you get back in? And that's what the lady is saying, that God has devised means whereby His banished are not expelled from Him. Now, certainly you can say, well, yeah, in the law of Moses, there is that pattern. I know the law has commandments, judgments, consequences, but the law also contains some remedies, doesn't it? If you steal a man's sheep, is there a way to get back? Well, yeah, you got to cough up four sheep for the sheep you stole. How about if you become unclean? Is there a remedy? you got to stay apart from God. You can't come into the temple precinct and so forth if you're in a state of uncleanness. But remember that ashy water that they had, the red heifer? Ashes put and mixed with the water so that the priest could sprinkle you and after a, uh, another day... You're clean again. You can come back in. The whole the law, what we call the ceremonial law, is that means by which God gave Israel a way to get back in after they had transgressed. That's what she seems to be referring to. But what I'm trying to get across to you tonight is that you could also describe this thing we call the gospel. Using the same words, God devises means so that his banished is not expelled from him. Notice who is the source of this thing. Who's the instigator? Who's making the first move? It's not man who's been banished. It's not Absalom who is sending letters to his father begging to get back. It's the first move is being made by God. It's God who devises the means. Right? He's the first one, as always. Secondly, what we call the gospel is indeed the means. The end is coming back into the full favor of God. It's what we call heaven, eternal life, glorification, sharing life with God in glory in the age to come. That's the destination. But in the meanwhile, here are the means by which God uses to get us from here to here. Things beginning to click in your head. Well, what are those means? Now, may I point out, David tried. Didn't work. Made a mess of it. And it reminds me that humanly speaking, there is no answer. There is no way to solve this problem. But that problem that would be impossible for anyone else, our God has solved in the person of His own Son. That God has made the first move. He's the one, as John 3.16 says, He's the one who gave His Son, sent Him to a cross. And there are many who think that the Gospel is that, well, uh, you know, there really is no banishment. There really is no barrier. 
Uh, that's typically the story of liberalism, is rather than the gospel being that which solves the difficulty, uh, liberalism basically says, well, there is no difficulty except in your own man, mind. That Christ died on the cross as an exhibition of God's love for everybody. And so if you'll just receive that, you're, you're back in. You, you never really were expelled. You never were really banned. And that's a bunch of nonsense. Others think that the gospel is God's scheme by which He gives to us a means whereby we can get ourselves back in. You know, He makes it possible. You and I then have to take advantage of the opportunity that God gives us to get ourselves back in good with God. Now, but the gospel is that hell-deserving man who doesn't give a hoot about God is by God's grace alone fetched, brought back into a state of justification on the one hand. Our sins are forgiven because a Savior went and bore those sins on a cross and paid for them in His own blood. But there's more to it than just that. Um, We have a prison in Mississippi, Parchman. I don't even know where Parchman is, but they always tell me, well, you got sent down to Parchman. Y'all probably got the same thing here in Alabama somewhere. And uh, suppose the governor of Mississippi says on the news tonight, I've decided to commute every sentence of every prisoner in the prison at Parchman. We're going to forgive them. And not only am I going to commute all the things they've already done, I'm going to commute anything they might do in the future. We're going to turn them loose back into society with no penalty whatsoever attached, not only to what they have done, but to anything they might do. Anybody here think that's a good idea? I mean, wouldn't you say, wait a minute, you better lock your doors tonight. The governor's lost his mind. He's turned loose a bunch of criminals and given them carte blanche of immunity to anything they might do. Well, do you realize that in justification, God has forgiven us, and not just past sins, present sins, future sins. And so what's going to keep you and I from doing the same thing? And there are those that understand the gospel in that light. If that's what the gospel is, so now I'm free to do my thing, whatever that is. I like to sin. God likes to forgive sin. Man, we make a great pair. But that's not the whole story. What if the governor adopts all of those prisoners he has set free? And what if the governor is able somehow to put part of his heart in the hearts of those prisoners so that not only are they now forgiven, but they are transformed? That they have a heart that delights in the law of the state and the heart of the governor. Do you understand? The full story of salvation is not just justification. It's an important part. Wouldn't be a gospel without it. But it also involves this thing called sanctification. 
that leads ultimately to glorification, whereby those who are forgiven all their sins are transformed into absolutely holy and perfect beings. When we stand with Christ in glory and see Him as He is, we are then made perfect, glorified with Him. You understand, that's the full picture. And that is what God does for us in this thing called the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not exactly all that impressive right now. Uh, Brother John, did you get that thing from David uh, Ash the other day about extraordinary? That was a wonderful little snippet, one of his little snippets he said. He said, you know, we're just, well, everybody says, well, are you extraordinary? And he says, no, no, I'm just ordinary. I'm not a bit extraordinary. I'm just ordinary. I've got a lot of ordinary. He said, if there's only, if the only way I'm extraordinary is I've got a whole bunch of ordinary. That's the only way I qualify for extraordinary. In other words, the extraordinary thing is not us. That's what the author was trying to say. It's not us. It's our extraordinary Savior. It's our extraordinary God who has conceived of these means, as to use the words of the lady, a scheme, a plan, a device, if you will, whereby hell-deserving sinners are forgiven their sins, washed and cleansed in the blood of Christ, transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit and perfected in glory. That's the means that God has devised that so that His banished ones might be restored. I, I just, uh, I've learned a long time ago that other people are not necessarily blown away by the things that blow me away. But the thing that struck me here is then the uniqueness of this thing we call the gospel. There's nothing else like it. And you can't mimic it. That's what David is trying to do. He's trying to mimic the gospel. To be a little bit just and a little bit merciful. You know, trying to mimic. And he just can't do it. It does not work on a human level. It took a supernatural God sending His Son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so the scheme is all God-centered, God-produced, and God-glorifying. And you say, well, where do I fit in? Well, I had an old fellow in my church back in Mississippi. He always would come up to me because he knew this aggravated me. He said, I think salvation works like this. God does His part, and I do my part. Y'all ever heard something like that? I mean, he knows that that's going to get under my skin. And I'm like, oh, Chuck, come on. And he said, well, it works like this. I do the sinning, he does the saving. And I said, yep, that's about it. What did I contribute to salvation? I contributed the sin that made salvation necessary. That's all. That was my part. All the rest of it, I must simply receive by faith. You say, well, what does that mean? Doesn't that mean you have a part to play? No. Receiving, the Scripture uses language like the hearing of faith. Right? If you hear a symphony, you receive that beautiful music into your soul. Does your ear contribute anything to the music? No. The ear is the receptive organ of the soul by which the music of the symphony enters into your soul. 
In the same way, you go look at a beautiful painting. You look at it and you receive the beauty and the glory of it. Does your looking at it improve the painting? Is it that which makes it glory? No. The eye is the receptive organ of your soul. It's the way you receive the beauty of the painting. In the same way, my friend, faith is simply the receptive organ of the soul. It's that by which we receive the beauty of this thing we call salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's the beauty. There's the glory. There's there's the efficacy, if you will, out there. But it is through faith that I receive it and it becomes mine. I become one with it. That glory, that beauty that's out there enters in to my soul. Paul will put it in 2 Corinthians 4 that it's like God opening eyes so that the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God might shine unto us. If I don't know your heart, I'm sure you've probably heard these things over and over. But if you're outside of Christ tonight, you say, well, what do, what do I need to do? Believe. Trust. Look. Look. Look unto me. Be saved. When Spurgeon finally understood those words, God saved his soul. Life for a look at the Savior. The old Puritans used to say, can you see it? If you can see it, you've got it. Oh, do you see it? Do you see the beauty of this scheme, this means, this plan, this work that God devised so that His banished is not expelled from Him. Oh, that you might see it tonight and see it more beautiful than ever before. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this wonderful illustration of what You do for us in the Gospel of Your Son. And may it grab us, may it seize our soul, our attention, that we might glory in our Savior, that we understand what You have done for us, how we were hopeless and helpless, and yet You came to our aid. And You did this thing that is absolutely, for man, impossible. May we then realize that we are walking, breathing miracles if we are saved people tonight. That it's nothing short of a miraculous work of our God that has brought us in to this wonderful standing that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that, Father, if you set your love upon us in the first place, without respect to who or what we were, that, Lord, your grace will surely lead us home and take us on to glory. So may we rejoice in what you've done for us tonight. And may we again lose ourselves in the wonder of it all. The wonder of your grace. And the wonder of your son's love for sinners. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.